Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Our call to worship this morning is based off of these words from Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. He writes, One time, investigating in the backyard of our house in Temuco, the tiny objects and minuscule beings of my world, I came upon a hole in one of the boards of the fence. I looked through the hole and saw a landscape like that behind our house, uncared for and wild. I moved back a few steps because I sensed vaguely that something was about to happen. And all of a sudden, a hand appeared, a tiny hand of a boy about my age. And by the time I came close again, the hand was gone. And in its place, there was a marvelous white sheep. The sheep's wool was faded. Its wheels had escaped. And all of this only made it more authentic. I had never seen such a wonderful sheep. I looked back through the hole, but the boy had disappeared. I went into the house and brought out a treasure of my own, a pine cone, opened, full of odor and resin, which I adored. And I set it down in the same spot, and I went off with the sheep. To feel the love of people whom we love is a fire that feeds our life. But to feel the affection that comes from those whom we do not know, from those unknown to us who are watching over our sleep and solitude, over our dangers and our weaknesses, that is something still greater and more beautiful because it widens out the boundaries of our being and unites all living things. For me, that exchange brought home the first time a precious idea that all humanity is somehow together. First Universalist friends, we come to this place with our offerings. We practice generosity and kindness, never knowing how we will impact another never knowing what gift we might receive. Come, let us worship together. A few weeks ago, I found myself in my hometown of Kansas City for two reasons. Reason number one, I went to our Unitarian Universalist Association General Assembly, big meeting we have every year. Reason number two, hang out with my parents together with my kids. It was a really nice coincidence that will probably not happen again in my lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) So I am a Kansan at heart. That's where I grew up. That's where my mom's people are from. And I still find myself surprised that my daughter is a Minnesotan. (laughs) That she thinks duck, duck, gray duck is the way to say it. And for her, just biking to your nearby urban lake is what you do when it's hot outside in the summertime. 
And so I wanted to show her a piece of my Kansas summer, uh, one of the delights of summertime a little further south where it's even more humid, which is the beauty of fireflies at dusk. We call them lightning bugs. Maybe you do too. So we made a plan. I wanted to preserve her bedtime, so we did normal bedtime, and then we made a plan to get her up um, right at dusk and walk down to the creek so that she could see fireflies. And so the first night we tried, actually, uh, my mom and I went into the room to give her a 20-minute warning, and she was laying very still in her bed, and she just looked at us very plainly and said, I think I might just fall asleep. And then she did. It didn't happen. <laughs> so we, she was disappointed, and we planned to do it the next night. And the next night was a little different because that day was a 100-plus degree day. And so we had stayed inside in the air conditioning for most of the day, and she wasn't as tired in the evening. She had more energy. So she managed to stay up. And we got her at dusk and started walking down to the creek, and I was so ready to dip into that nostalgia, and I was so ready to make that connection between my mom and me and my daughter. And as we left the house filled with fans and air conditioning and walked out into the evening, I was just shocked by the heat. <laughs> it was so hot. It was 8.30, and it was still in the upper 90s. And as we made our way down to the park, I realized that it was actually a little difficult for me to breathe in this kind of still, thick heat. Um, this was not what I had planned for. <laughs> and I'm not somebody who has allergies. I don't have asthma. I'm not used to feeling compromised with my lungs. But I found myself focusing on my breathing as we crossed the road. And... Um, Instead of basking in pure summer nostalgia, I felt something else very familiar, which is a dread and anxiety and grief about climate change, and specifically as it relates to my children. This dystopian pang of visioning my daughter experiencing a planet that is really different than the planet that I experienced and that my mom experienced. And climate change is happening so quickly that I am sure that my children are going to be living in a different world, and I don't know what it looks like. A world with weather events and losses and adaptations I can't anticipate. A world that is a big unknown. And it frightens me. And I just shove this feeling down. <laughs> uh, but I have it all the time, and I hate it. And so, here I am in this very familiar state of split consciousness, which is on one hand enjoying something beautiful about life and also experiencing grief and dread about suffering and change in our world. Our reading this morning says, try to praise the mutilated world. Remember June's long days and wild strawberries. You've seen the refugees going nowhere. You've heard the executioners sing joyfully. And this was a long June day 
and the fireflies were flying slowly, glowing quietly, and my child and my mother were beautiful in the evening light. And I am afforded this um, completely unfair comfort and luxury of compartmentalization through my deep privilege and also just through sheer dumb luck in my life. And at the very time this was happening in my mothering experience, so many refugees were going nowhere in our world. They were detained. Mothers and fathers and children detained at the border. Over 3,000 children cruelly, inhumanely separated from their parents, including over 100 children under age five. These are toddlers and babies. And I know you know this, but I have to name it at church, and we have to name it together. It's not the same as listening to the news alone. And one such mother was Yeni Gonzalez, a migrant from Guatemala who had traveled across her country and across Mexico into Arizona, where she was picked up by the border patrol with her children who were ages 11, 9, and 6, and taken into Eloy Detention Center in Arizona. At Eloy, Yeni was informed that her children would be separated from her, that the United States government would take her children and deport her to Guatemala. Can you even imagine? And four days later, guards entered her cell at 5 a.m., and Yeni had been too upset to sleep, so she was awake, but her children were sleeping on the floor in the way that children can sleep, sometimes almost anywhere. And agents came into the cell, and they took her children and shut the door. And Yeni broke down crying. And then she was taken to a cell where there were so many mothers that it was difficult to walk. And these mothers shared their stories and their tears. And Yeni connected with other mothers from Guatemala in particular. And for food, these mothers in our country received runny soup at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. And Yeni could hardly get it down, but she tried to consume some of it kind of in the way that you would take medicine. And at one point, she saw them fill up the soup again with water from the hose. And the mothers all slept very little, and they lost track of what time of day it was, because the lights were always on. And there were once children among these mothers, but slowly the children left. What does it do to someone to have their baby taken away? What does it do to a child to be separated from their parents? Why did our country have a policy of further, why did our country receive orders to further traumatize people who are fleeing violence and hunger, who are leaving everything they know out of desperation? Yeni was one of the lucky few to ultimately be reunited with her children and her story was shared in the New York Times. However, she is in the minority. 
the open, shameless evil of separating families, and the slow, complicated, maddeningly ineffective process of reuniting them. It's been so appalling. And to see our religious heritage perverted to suggest that God is somehow in favor of separating children from their families and psychically torturing people who are fleeing crisis and seeking a better life, it is enraging. And it is not new. The Bible, as we all know, has long been used to justify slavery and others of the worst cruelties people do to each other. So where are we? What world is this where the fabric of our country seems to be unraveling? Our democracy unraveling, our civility, our regulating agencies, our international alliances. Our country is ask, acting out its own worst inclinations. What is this place? And for many people living ensconced in privilege, like me, for example, this era that we've been in the last few years feels starkly and disorientingly new. And I locate myself there. I'm noticing my own impulses to retreat into my privilege, to shrink down my circle of concern into something, a place where I have some control and influence to block out what is happening. And these behaviors and coping mechanisms have been deeply ingrained by me because this is how whiteness works and preserves itself. And it separates us from one another and it asks us to deny truth and trauma. And this is not who we are. This is not who we are as a religious people. That's not what we do. And for people whose identities and lived experiences have been historically marginalized, nothing particularly new is happening. The deep down truth is just more exposed. And there's no retreating from very real threats to safety and to rights. So together we are here in a never before visited reality, which is now. Now has never happened before. And there's no going back. This is where we are. And this world and its injustices and its heat and its unravelings, this is our present moment. It's our job to name it together. The poet Adrian Rich wrote, my heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, for no, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. So what does it look like to reconstitute the world right now? What is our religious response to this moment that is trying to shut us down and shut us up? Unitarian Universalist theologian, the Reverend Dr. Rebecca Parker, notes that in hard times, 
Religious liberals tend to respond by placing our hope in the future and seeing ourselves as very responsible for fixing things up and for making the plans for how things should look in the future. And she writes that the apocalyptic myth of liberal religion imagines that the present world will come to the end to an end in the future, and then after that, a new day will dawn. And in the liberal apocalyptic imagination, uh, all the violent parts get skipped. It sees change as coming through an evolutionary process, a gradual dismantling of evil empires and the eventual unfolding of life into greater forms of beauty and justice. And Rebecca Parker invites us to imagine the apocalypse not as a future event, but instead one that is already behind us. This means honestly facing the conditions of devastation that are around us at this very moment. Acknowledging that we are collectively living with and affected by the past traumas of slavery, genocide of native people, theft of their land, the suffering of the world that we are currently living in is a product of pain and injustice that have already happened. So she invites us to see ourselves as living in a post-apocalyptic time, as people tasked with figuring out how we're called to live amongst the ruins. So I want to invite you into going there with me this morning in your imagination. And salvaging is one of the primary tasks of living in a post-cataclysmic landscape. And Parker invites us to think about what life-giving practices, what tools do we want to salvage from the rubble? And salvaging is very countercultural for us as a country, where commercialism, materialism, and capitalism reign strong. And I think salvaging is very countercultural in our Unitarian Universalist religious tradition in a lot of ways. This is a tradition with Christian roots that we mostly don't acknowledge. We don't tend to be in very close relationship with our history. Many of us have left behind religious traditions from our upbringing. We're people, we like to change the lyrics to the hymn. I like a lot of the changes. We create our own worship themes here. Um, we're a rather ahistorical people. So I would say, um, I feel like salvaging is a countercultural act for us too, as Unitarian Universalists. So as we're together sifting through the rubble, what do we want to carry forward? What are the traditions, the rituals, the commitments that we pledge to carry forward into the unknown? This morning, I would like to suggest two practices for us to salvage together, both of which are deeply embedded within our liberal faith tradition. First, I would like to see us lean into salvaging a core tenet of liberal religion, which is that religious revelation is open and continuous. Religious truth has not already been revealed once and for all in a static, unchanging way, but wisdom and truth are always emerging and unfolding. 
This is probably striking you as very obvious right now because we, ever, we never act in this church as though it were otherwise. But I mention this for a particular reason because this orientation I think can save us but only if we hold it with humility. It's way too easy and I think it's very unhelpful for us to take a lazy route of hubris here and to proclaim our sophistication as an educated people who embrace science and reason and don't have time for small-minded silliness of fundamentalism. That's very easy to do. But the saving truth at the core of liberal religion isn't about knowing. It is about not knowing together. And it is only through this posture of humble receptivity, of continually acknowledging that we don't know it all and we need each other and we need the stranger in order to collectively uncover wisdom. And this is how we are going to make a future together. We must open our hearts to receive survival knowledge from people who have been persecuted, people who are living on the margins, from our ancestors, and from our peers who have found a way through. Secondly, I'd like to invite us into salvaging the ways that we practice relationship as a community. Again, we obviously do this at church. What's new? Well, I was listening to a new favorite podcast that I'll recommend to you. It's about apocalypse. It's called How to Survive the End of the World. And I want to give a shout out to my colleague Gretchen Haley, who connected this podcast episode with the work of Rebecca Parker. Uh, it's Adrienne Marie Brown and her system, sister Autumn Brown talking about the situation we're in and surviving it with grace and joy. Um, and Autumn once worked at the New York Disaster Interfaith Services. And she shared some concrete advice for a time of catastrophe. And apparently, whenever people ask her, Autumn, you know so much about disaster preparedness. What would you suggest I do? The one thing she suggests to everybody is get to know your neighbors. And don't just wave as your cars pass in the street, but invite your neighbor into your house accept invitations from your neighbor, really get to know each other, because that way you have a connection, A, because that's what humans should do, and B, because in the case of, an, of a disaster, you're gonna be thrust into each other's arms anyway. She also encourages people into a broader understanding of the skills that they might bring into a disaster scenario. And the need is not just for people who can fix things and build fires, as I know I imagined, and frankly, I've assessed myself as completely useless in a disaster scenario, so this was very heartening to me. Uh, so often, the stories that she heard from people in the aftermath of disasters is that what really meant something was the person who stayed in the food tent from the break of day until the sun went down, dishing out meals. And not just the act of giving food, but the connection with warmth and care. That what really meant something to someone was that 
there was someone who knew how to slow down and show up for another person who had experienced loss and who could be there offering love, offering a caring witness, not trying to fix it, uh, but being that compassionate, caring presence. These are the kinds of skills we wish to salvage. These also happen to be spiritual practices in our faith community right now that we have an opportunity to only go deeper with. The practice of welcoming in the stranger, the practice of gathering in a small group to put our attention on deeply listening to one another, the practice of building community that is planned for people who we haven't met yet to experience belonging. And right now is the best time to delve deep into these practices of relationship. They nourish the world, they nourish the spirit, they will make you feel good. They are hopeful and life-giving. And so I've got some invitations for you, if you'll just stick with me. I would be willing to bet money that if I asked you whether welcoming in everyone to this faith community, regardless of who they are and what they've been through, is at the beating heart of this church, you would respond to me with a resounding yes. Obviously, we are the church of welcoming everybody. And something that you may not know is that our welcome teams and our usher teams are struggling right now with having enough people on them. And there are some Sundays where there's just two or three people tasked with welcoming folks at our 10 billion doors in our wonderfully unique building <laughs> and helping people find their way around to the elevator that's hidden, to the front office that's hidden, to religious education on an entirely different wing, to welcoming in a harried parent with children who kind of didn't want to come this morning into a new place. This is a once a month, really easy way to uh, engage in this critical spiritual practice uh, of relationship. And this, if this is something you think you could take on one time a month, just for a year, I invite you to head down to the social hall to Joyce Case, who is staffing our information table, it says information up here, and give her your name and email. And I'd love to reach out to you and welcome you on to one of our greeter or usher teams. We also take these practices of relationship outside of our walls into our personal lives, our professional lives, our neighborhood lives, and into our relationship with our social justice partner organizations. And so just in the month of August, would you like to be in relationship with somebody who is experiencing uh, housing insecurity? Join our team of Habitat for Humanity Builders for their building week this August. They're really nice people. You might learn a skill that would make you more qualified than me to help fix something if something bad happened. <laughs> you could show me how to use a hammer. Um, also, First Universalist, as you know, is hosting families experiencing homelessness, inviting them to experience our church as home for two weeks. And this is through families moving forward. You can reach out using the information in your order of service. 
I really want to encourage people who have children in their lives to consider volunteering for families moving forward with your children because there are children, I'm seeing a yes, there are children and families who are going to be staying here and it is a powerful, our children are powerful, uh, open-hearted connectors who can connect with kids here who are experiencing so much disruption. And finally, I want to invite you to be in relationship with vulnerable strangers as an immigrant court observer. And if Jenny's story made you cry like it made me cry, if, I don't know about you, I feel rage every time I hear about what's been going on. This is a place to take your feelings and show up. Uh, your job is simply witnessing the uh, legal process that immigrants who've been detained by ICE are experiencing. And you know, it makes me think about Pablo Neruda's little sheep being offered by a strange a stranger through the fence that we never know how what seems to us like the smallest gift might be received by somebody who doesn't know us. Um, that gift is really a blessing. We never know how we touch people's lives by showing up. So here we are. We're living in a time of emergence, a time of dissolution, a time of revelation, a time of discord, a time of creativity, a time of suffering, a time of beauty in this mutilated world. And together, we salvage life-giving practices from everything that is coming apart around us. That is our work. It's important work, and we are perfectly cut out for it and each one of us has our own peace. So living with a mind open to new wisdom, living with a heart ready to listen deeply, listening to the movements of the spirit, we, stand, we are here together ready to receive the ancestral and contemporary wisdom of all of those who've been surviving for the long haul. Practicing listening to one another, inviting each other in, seeing a companion and a co-conspirator in the stranger. This is our religious inheritance. These are our survival instructions in this post-apocalyptic time. And this is just what we do as a faith community, and we do it with joyful hearts. It is our job to have fun, and I'm, seri I'm very serious about fun. <laughs> But if we can't do this with joy, forget about it. Let's enjoy each other and enjoy our work. So we close with the words of Adrian Rich. My heart is moved by all I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. Let us praise the mutilated world, roll up our sleeves, and celebrate love and beauty and possibility. It is our work to do. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. 
If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.